If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 15 and Exodus 26. You probably knew about Exodus 26 if you've been here the last several weeks, but I also want to encourage you to go to Psalm 15. Since Exodus chapter 26 is a longer text today, I'm going to just insert it into the body of the message. And so when we stand in a moment to read God's word, we will read Psalm 15, which is a little bit uh, briefer, but related to the message today. Now, when it comes to making and manufacturing things, I know to whom I am preaching. In our congregation, there are people whose job it is to study and test materials that will go into highly sophisticated aircraft. You have to look at the uh, intrinsic properties of the materials. You have to think about who manufactures it, the quality of the manufacturing, and how the individual parts will interplay with the elaborate whole. You have spreadsheets, parts, quantities, costs, and often, not always, but often, Your obsession with detail bleeds right over into your mechanically-minded approach to everything you own that's in your garage, let's say, from your mower to your car to the specially individually designed workbench that you built to exacting dimensions. Many of you are meticulously detailed. But, for those who I'm speaking to, don't quickly forget, there are others of us who may from time to time feign interest in the details of how things are made or how they work, but in reality, we are much happier to just plod along through life in the complete bliss of ignorance. We jump into our cars, turn the key, and thank the Lord for people like you who care about the thread count of a bolt underneath the hood, okay? In other words, I'm dividing us, yes, into two types of people in broad strokes, The people who build the clock and the people who are content for you to please just tell me what time it is. And neither of those types of individuals are going to find Exodus chapter 26 very satisfying. That's why when you get to Exodus 26 in your Bible reading plans, many of you either skip it or get frustrated with it. Its details are enough to make most of the people who just want you to tell them what time it is to be like, you know what, I'm piecing out after a couple of verses of this. Like, you find the extensive measurements and the loop counts of curtains to be tedious and boring. But some of you, that first type of people I was describing, when you knew we were coming to Exodus 26, you went home and you got your graph paper out and your mechanical pencil and you started reconstructing your own rendering of the tabernacle. But when you did, you realized some of the details you needed to get that sense of completion that you basically live for was absent. It's like getting to the end of a thousand-piece puzzle and finding a couple of the pieces were missing. And so what do we make of all this? The details that we do have in Exodus 26 demonstrate God's concern that the tent in which he would dwell would be patterned exactly after that which he revealed to Moses. In Exodus chapter 26 and verse 30, God says, you are to set up the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you have been shown on the mountain. 
So although Moses didn't write everything down for us, he did, as it were, get to look at the puzzle box. He got to see the diagram. And then he could go and speak with Bezalel and Oholiab and tell them more details in person about how to build God's tent. Furthermore, the Israelites were undoubtedly familiar with tent making. They lived in tents. They knew about tent making practices. So they didn't need every single detail of the tent spelled out for them. Some of it would have just been common sense for them. So it stands to reason that the details that are recorded for us are worth taking the time to closely examine, and they are more likely to have some measure of spiritual significance to them. So prayerfully, today's message will draw some of that out for you. What I need from you, from those of you who are allergic to details, is to be patient with the details so that we have time to find the value of their significance in this chapter. And then for those of you who are so often lost in the trees that you miss the forest, avoid looking at chapter 26 like it's an instruction manual and capture the value of the spiritual significance of God's tent that is herein described. Okay, with that introduction, let's stand together and read Psalm 15. This is a Psalm of David in which he asks at the very first verse, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word whatever the cost, who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be shaken. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. Please be seated and join me in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, my prayer today is that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On July 18th, 2021, just a little over a year ago, Pastor Allen preached on Psalm 15. In his message, he said, quote, As a Hebrew, few things would have mattered more to David than dwelling in God's presence. In Exodus chapter 19, the Israelites found themselves nearly face to face with God, and they quickly concluded that God's presence was something they were unworthy of and totally unprepared for, being in God's presence. Pastor Allen went on to say, the tabernacle and then the temple after it reinforced awareness of the impassable chasm between God and humanity. And yet, David's divinely inspired answer to his question, 
who may dwell in your tent, points us to the final, the ultimate answer, namely Jesus Christ. What a great introduction to our study of God's tent and who may dwell in God's tent. So as we consider God's tent today, we will also consider who can dwell in his presence. That's because the tent design itself points us to the nearly impassable chasm between heaven and earth, between God and man. So let's consider first then the physical features of God's tent. Now to make this overview of the physical features for those detail allergic people as painless as possible and as brief as possible, I want to share some of what I found from J.V. Fesco's excellent book called Christ and the Desert Tabernacle, in which he succinctly outlines these features into five subsections. I couldn't improve on it, so I'm sharing it with you today. He starts with verses 1 through 6, from now in Exodus 26. So if you flip in your Bible, with the inner curtain. The inner curtain. This is not the veil. This is the kind of the inner curtain that's covering the tabernacle totally. And just like God started his instructions for the tabernacle with the furnishings inside of it, first the ark, then the table and the lampstand, God begins his instructions for the tents that would house these things from the inside out. It's as though it's from God's perspective from dwelling inside of the tent. He's looking at this first covering, this first curtain. This chapter is about the tent that would house the holy of holies and the holy place. This is not about the outer courtyard, the larger surrounding uh, tent material that would have gone around it. This is the tabernacle proper, and it begins with the inner curtain. Verses 1 through 6, will you read with me? You are to construct the tabernacle itself with 10 curtains. You must make them of finely spun linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn with the design of cherubim worked into them. Each curtain should be 42 feet long and six feet wide, all the curtains are to have the same measurements. Five of the curtains should be joined together, and the other five curtains joined together. Make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the last curtain in the first set, and do the same on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Make 50 loops on the one curtain, and make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain in the second set, so that the loops line up together. Brilliant. Also, make 50 gold clasps and join the curtains together with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single unit. So you're five and five, put them together with rings and hang it over, okay? So this is the inner curtain. The resulting piece of expensive woven fabric, when it was all joined together, panels, loops, and all, would have been 60 feet long, and 42 feet from top to bottom. Now, we're going to move outward a layer from that inner curtain to the outer curtain, or could be outer curtains, because there are three more layers that are going on top of this. Verses 7 through 14. You are to make curtains of goat hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Make 11 of these curtains. Each curtain should be 45 feet long and 6 feet wide. All 11 curtains are to have the same measurements. Join five of the curtains by themselves and the other six curtains by themselves. Then fold the sixth curtain double at the front of the tent. 
Make 50 loops on the edge of one curtain, the outermost in the first set, and make 50 loops on the edge of the corresponding curtain of the second set. Make 50 bronze clasps, put the clasps through the loops, and join the tent together so that it is a single unit. As for the flap that remains from the tent curtains, the leftover half curtain is to hang over the back of the tabernacle. What remains along the length of the tent curtains, a half yard on one side and a half yard on the other side, should hang over the sides of the tabernacle on either side to cover it. Make a covering for the tent from ram skins dyed red and a covering of fine leather on top of that. So in essence... These second, third, and fourth layers are designed to protect the expensive inner layer from the elements, whether that's the wind, the sun, the rain, dust. And you already begin to see the, the details are there for the goat hair layer, right? So we talked with the first layer. It's got measurements and all this. The goat hair layer is three feet longer. It's kind of looped over the back and kind of covers the round. And then the details are not there for the outer two layers, the the one that would have been more weather-resistant. These are just kind of left unknown for how big they were. And so you see that there's some assumption that they knew how to make tents. They knew what to do from there, okay? That's unimportant. It's just important that you know it was covered with these four layers. Okay, then we find out in verses 15 through 25 about the frames that are going to hold these layers of curtains up. Verse 15, you're to make upright supports of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each support is to be 15 feet long and 27 inches wide. Let me pause on verse 16. In uh, the CSB Bible that I'm reading from, there are uh, two footnotes in verse 16. One of them is on the support being 15 feet long. And the footnote says, literally, uh, that is 10 cubits. Okay, so just by way of reminder, I, I got this from Brother John Fields. He let me borrow this, and it is super cool. Super cool. I might hide it so that he can never have it back. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is a really, really awesome uh, cubit. So it's a measurement. Again, the cubit was about from the tip of your fingers to the inner part of your arm. And so some construction dude, you know, like we have the little leather loops for our, you know, hammer. They probably have like a little holder for their cubit. And they'd be like, wow, 10 cubits, one, two. And they go up and they make these frames. And then the other, you know, uh, footnote is that it's 27 inches. Okay, if this is about 18, then it's one and a half cubits. And that's where the CSB is translating the Hebrew for us to give us 27 inches. The average measurement was 18 inches for a cubit. Okay, so verse 16, verse 17, each support will have two tenons for joining. Do the same for all the supports of the tabernacle. Make the supports for the tabernacle as follows. 20 supports for the south side and make 40 silver bases under the 20 supports two bases under the first support for its two tenons and two bases under the next support for its two tenons. 20 supports for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, along with their 40 silver bases, two bases under the first support and two bases under each support. Verse 22, and make six supports for the west side of the tabernacle. Make two additional supports for the two back corners of the tabernacle 
They are to be paired at the bottom and joined together at the top in a single ring. So it should be for both of them. They will serve as the two corners. There are to be eight supports with their silver bases, 16 bases, two bases under the first support, and two bases under each support. So let's pause here. Again, we're just trying to catch all the different layers going on. The curtains that we read about in verses 1 through 14 are to be held in place by a series of frames. These frames were upright supports that were placed in pedestals made out of silver. They would have been like a 27-inch wide ladder, okay? Cubit and a half. It would have been this wide, two verticals, and it would have had little things going across it to kind of make it like a little wooden ladder that you set in those two silver pedestals that are touching the ground. It was not a solid board. It had to be more portable, movable, and you would set these up in all of these bases, 20 on each side and then six on the back wall where the west side of the tabernacle was. The, um, the frames, these ladder-like things, were made out of acacia wood along with other furnishings in the tabernacle that had been made of the same wood. And they were overlaid with gold and they were to be portable. Okay, then those frames that are set up kind of stand in the stands, laying out the, the rectangle, they are joined together by, fourthly, cross beams. The, the cross beams, verses 26 through 30. You are to make five crossbars of acacia wood for the supports on one side of the tabernacle, five crossbars for the supports on the other side of the tabernacle, and five crossbars for the supports on the back side of the tabernacle on the west. The central crossbar is to run through the middle of the supports from one end to the other. Then overlay the supports with gold, make their rings of gold as the holders for the crossbars. Also overlay the crossbars with gold. You are to set up the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you have been shown on the mountain. These cross beams were constructed similarly to the frames and they were to join together with the frames once connected it would form this rectangular tabernacle upon which the inner and outer curtains would have been hung. Okay, so do you now, do you now have a big rectangle in your mind? You got it? It's got the wooden with the overlay, and then you got the four layers over top of it. And now we move to verses 31 through 37, where the layout of the tabernacle is described. And this is important. Verse 31 You are to make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely spun linen with a design of cherubim worked into it. Hang it on four gold-plated pillars of acacia wood that have gold hooks and that stand on four silver bases. Hang the curtain under the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony there behind the curtain so the curtain will make a separation for you between the holy place and the most holy place. Put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. Place the table, that's the table for the showbread we've studied, outside the curtain and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle, opposite the table. Put the table on the north side. Remember, you would enter in the tabernacle from the east. So the table would have been on the right and the lampstand on the left. Verse 36 
For the entrance to the tent, you are to make a screen embroidered with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely spun linen. Make five pillars of acacia wood for the screen and overlay them with gold. Their hooks are to be gold and you are to cast five bronze bases for them. Now, in this portion of the text, God gives to Israel the basic layout of the inside of the tabernacle. A curtain divided that rectangular tent into two rooms. The larger room that you would enter into first was known as the holy place. Now, it's not described here in chapter 27, but later we come to find out it also held the altar of incense, which would have been right in front of the the veil that led into the holy of holies. So in the holy place, again, this outer room, there was the altar of incense, the table for the bread of the presence on the north or the right, and the golden lampstand on the south or your left as you entered. This holy place would have been 30 feet long and 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. The most holy place, the holy of holies, as it's also called, was where the Israelites were to place the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, when God began with the instructions of the tabernacle, he began with the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of his holy presence. The Holy of Holies would have been 15 by 15 by 15. 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. It was a cube. And separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place was a blue curtain that had cherubim embroidered into it. Blue, purple, scarlet yarn and the working of cherubim into it. According to the Jewish Talmud, the veil was four inches thick and required a lot of priests to carry it and move it around. The layout, as well as the veil that separated these two rooms, leads us then perfectly into consideration of the significance of God's tent. The significance of God's tent. Number two, you may have noticed that both the veil and the inner curtain, okay, the the kind of If you were standing inside the tabernacle and looking up, that's what I'm describing as the inner curtain. That's the curtain that's going over the frames first, okay? The veil and the inner curtain were designed with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and both of them had cherubim on them. So cherubim in front of you, cherubim above you. So when a priest would enter the holy place from the courtyard, the symbolism of all this blue and the The angels was suggesting that he was in God's heavenly abode, like he had entered into the heavens. Psalm 104 pictures God as covering himself with light, like a cloak. And the psalmist says, he stretches out heaven like a tent curtain. The heavens to him are just like a tent curtain. So the first thing we can say about the significance of God's tent is that it pictured heaven on earth. It's a little picture of heaven on earth. The tabernacle was not merely patterned after a heavenly reality. Its design itself would have inspired thoughts of entering into the heavenly courts. The splendor of angels who would be at God's service would have surrounded the priests. As such, They would have sensed a nearness to God. That was, after all, part of God's intent, to dwell among his people. 
It was a return to the sort of proximity that he once shared with human beings in the Garden of Eden. Now, as I mentioned last week, some have even suggested, I think rightly so, that the almond tree characteristics of the lampstand would have also hearkened the priests back to the idea of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And yet, there was still a very evident sense of separation between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of the priests. See, although they were allowed to come close into his courts, so to speak, they were perpetually separated by the veil that stood between the holy place and the holy of holies. And thus, the echoes of Eden have a negative connotation as well. Because the cherubim would have reminded the priests the danger of God's presence. Remember in Eden, God set the two cherubim with flaming swords to guard his holy presence. And when uh, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they were kicked out to the east of Eden. And now what is the entrance to the tabernacle from the east? Okay, well, you can come, you can come, and you're in, you're in the holy place, but God's presence is still being guarded by cherubim woven into the fabric of the veil. This is the second point of the significance of chapter 26 that we're studying today. It was a picture, the tabernacle was, of the limited accessibility of God. A picture of heaven on earth, yes, but a picture of the limited accessibility of God. For all of the beauty of the Ark of the Covenant, it was perpetually kept out of sight. Most Israelites, including most of the Levites who served as priests, never, ever saw the ark. Whenever the people were encamped, the tabernacle had been erected, the ark was hidden from view by the curtain in the tabernacle, blocked from the sight of anyone, even those who would have been permitted to come into the holy place. And before the ark was transported, while the curtains of the tabernacle still surrounded it and kept it out of public sight, the high priest, assisted by a small number of other priests, would wrap the ark in three layers of protective fabric. Numbers chapter 4 describes this process. In verse 5, it says, Whenever the camp is about to move on, Aaron and his sons are to go in, take down the screening curtain, and cover the ark of the testimony with it. They are to place over this a covering made of fine leather, spread a solid blue cloth on top, and insert its poles. So the ark is being completely concealed every time the camp is moved. It would be appropriate to think that God's intentions in this was that the ark itself not become an idol, that the Israelites wouldn't worship the ark, and that would be true. But it is also plainly evident that God was teaching the people through the design of the tabernacle that the only way to approach God and dwell in his presence was by the blood of a sacrifice. And even that only took place and was only permitted one day a year on the Day of Atonement. In other words, the average Israelite only had access to God through the work of a mediator who would sprinkle blood to atone for sin that separated God and man. The author of Hebrews 
helps us bring this home and spell out the significance of what's happening. In chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, we read, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. That's the holy place. You now understand that by kind of redesigning this in your mind's eye. They go to the first section regularly, performing ritual duties. But into the second section, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So the Spirit of God, the writer of Hebrews says, was indicating that while the veil was intact, God's approachability was limited, and the people needed a high priest to mediate for them through the shedding of blood. The author of Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 9, verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, more perfect than the tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Not many verses later, in the next chapter, the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Okay, now you've gotten a picture of the curtain today in Exodus 26. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus opened a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And so, the New Testament thus explicitly tells us the third way that God's tent in the Old Testament was significant. It was a picture of Christ's flesh torn for us. I love this quote from the NIV Grace and Truth Study Bible. Quote, We come to God not through a physical curtain in an earthly tabernacle, but through the flesh of Christ torn for us that we may have access to God. Now, as I draw to a conclusion this morning and Pastor Allen prepares to lead us in just a few short moments in the Lord's Supper. My prayer is that you now have eyes to see the answer to the question in Psalm 15. Who can dwell in God's tent? The answer is anyone who puts their faith in the one whose flesh was torn for us. He was the one whose walk was blameless. Jesus was the one who fulfilled all righteousness and acknowledged the truth in his heart. Jesus did not slander. Jesus never harmed his friends or discredited his neighbors. Jesus despised evil. He honored the upright, and Jesus kept his word. 
He never deceived anyone for financial gain. Jesus lived an unshakable and unassailably holy life. And he entered into the holy of holies boldly on our behalf by means of his own flesh and his own blood to atone for our sins. And thus, by the work of our mediator, our great high priest, we now have access to a holy God. We may dwell with him. In Mark's gospel, when Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last on the cross, verse 38 of Mark 15 says, Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain, torn in two, was patterned after the curtain that was in the tabernacle. So commentator Philip Ryken writes this. He says, make no mistake, this was a miracle. The tearing of the curtain was a miracle. If the curtain had been like a bed sheet, sure, someone could have ripped it in two. But the curtain was much too thick for that, for anyone to tear. Furthermore, it was torn from top to bottom. You recall that the curtain would have been 15 feet high. Something you got the details of by 10 cubits, right? You paid attention to the details. You didn't give up on them. There was significance to that. Why is that significant? Because no human being can just reach up there and tear it. You would need a ladder, wouldn't you? And no priest was going to allow another priest to set up a ladder, climb up to the top of the temple that had separated them from God's presence and start cutting and ripping away. They would have taken him outside the camp and stoned him to death. You would never do that. And so there's no mistake that the curtain that had separated the people of God from God's presence for over a millennium had been parted by God himself. Now the way was open for the priests and for the whole human race to meet with God in the most holy place. It's not surprising then to learn from the book of Acts that after Jesus ascended to heaven and the word of God spread, we read in chapter 6, verse 7, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of surprise, surprise, priests became obedient to the faith. Why? The priests had witnessed a miracle confirming that the way was now open to God. God opened the curtain. God invited them in. And once the curtain was torn, it was no longer a barrier. It was a gateway, an open door to fellowship with God. Friends, there is no longer restricted access, limited access to God, except for one limitation. Only one restriction. You must come into God's presence through the way he has ordained. The flesh and blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And so, I close with John 3.16. God loved the world in this way. That he gave his only son. That whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Life dwelling in the presence of God, as Psalm 23, 6 says, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.